1: Hello and welcome to Outcast with wealthy dowager David Berry and me, local farmhand Tim Downey. Uh, today we begin fracking in the rich and fertile outlander wilderness, bulldozing our way through the delicate ecosystem to unearth the untold riches hidden beneath. And we've certainly struck gold this week. An actress and musician whose work takes in the commitments, Orphan Black, the Tudors, Downton Abbey, Dexter, Father Ted. I mean, come on and, of course, playing the wonderful jacasta in Outlander. She's released nine solo studio albums and continues to write and tour extensively. She is, of course, the brilliant and mercurial Maria Doyle Kennedy. Welcome. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us in our uh, Outlander wilderness, ready for the fracking, jumping right in. We have <laughs> our, our, our usual scene that we are about to play with a, a, a three-hander, if you will. And today we have chosen, um, it's episode 506, this is before the locusts arrive. Arr, locusts. And it is a lovely, lovely little scene with uh, Roger and Brianna. And how are we divvying out the parts, ladies and gentlemen? How are we going to do this? We have Roger, Brianna, and of course, the ve- very important, that holds it all together, the glue, the stage directions.
2: <laughs> well, I'm going to do the stage directions because I'm just dying to listen to the two of you do Roger and Brianna, to be honest. So, uh, a lot of that. And also because... Um, this is, they're talking about Joe Pasta's character. So it would be good observational exercise for me to re listen to the scene and what they actually thought about me or, I mean, Joe Pasta.
3: Are there any locusts in this scene? Could I be a locust? Could that be a possibility here? talking part as a locust. Look, I'm, I'm ready. I'll, I'll dive in. I'll dive in, Tim. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. All right. Fabulous. Fabulous.
2: <sighs> Interior, there's Ridge. Roger and Brianna's cabin. A squalling Jemmy McKenzie bounces on Roger Wakefield McKenzie's knee. Roger wipes at Jemmy's runny nose with a handkerchief while Brianna McKenzie tends the fire.
3: Mm, I hate this Scottish accent. I think we all know that I can't do one and I'm... You're
1: in for a real treat, Maria. Uh, Real treat. Honestly, if you want to close your eyes, you could be anywhere
3: like in iceland what was my that's how far north he's gonna i need to channel russian now wasn't it and let me think come now laddie just a wee sniffle it's not so bad no, um, okay that's pretty good
2: roger the handkerchief It's covered in snot
3: yeah well i wouldn't give for a box of tissues awesome baby aspirin i don't know where i'm from
1: but I think, I think, I think I've got the right level. Or <laughs> some baby aspirin.
3: Okay. Well, I'm, I'm back in the scene, hold on. Back in the scene. Though I suppose it wouldn't make much difference. How is it that 200 years from now, we have a man on the moon, but still no, no cure for the bloody common cold?
1: You could have gone to the wedding, you know? I can handle a kid with a cold.
3: I know. But I wanted to help.
1: Jocaster insulted you at our wedding. So you thought you'd insult her by not going to her? <laughs> I'm, sorry. To... I'm sorry, Tim. This
3: is what happened. This, this, if this we were wonderful doing stuff. this as I'm a scene, this, funny. I think I might break. You're being re- very respectful of my accent. But, um, <laughs> something about what you're saying is just setting me off here. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I've got no idea. I am. This is massive. good stuff. I'm giving it both barrels. Can you give me that feed line again? Yes. Here we go. Please.
1: Jocaster insulted you at our wedding. So you thought you'd insult her by not going to hers?
3: Well, two birds with one stone.
2: Brianna notices Adzo toying with something.
1: Adzo has brought us a gift.
2: She picks it up, examining it. It's a dead locust, she jokes.
1: Just what I always wanted.
4: Suddenly,
2: a thwack. Roger crosses to the window. A locust is crawling on the glass. He looks down and sees two more locusts crawling on the floor of the porch. Or, foreboding, Paul falls over him.
3: Uh, now, Tim, I, I know you're going to be with me on this. I, I detected a little bit of, like, Southern Bell in what you just did. And I was wondering if we could take this in a different direction here. Just go with me on it. I didn't think it's a gift from Adsel. And I hope it's not a gift from the gods. <laughs> i like it yeah a bit of
1: tennessee williams i don't even think you can see the join that's how much i liked it from being <laughs> irish but no from big sort of scottish russian <laughs> to new orleans
3: i i liked him i thought it was i thought it was good i'm somewhere somewhere in tennessee williams i'm, I'm brick um i don't know I'm, I'm big daddy big daddy is that the end of the scene are Definitely. we done That's the end of the scene. That is the end of the scene. And that's where it all- I was just gearing up for a Tennessee Williams kind of melodrama. I know.
1: I know. I mean, you're more, (laughs) we are more than welcome. I mean, you can carry on. Is there another little bit? No, it cuts, it cuts, it cuts out, and it goes back to Jamie and Claire. Uh, And then you appear actually, about two or three scenes later, you appear. Now that would be a treat. Goodness me. <laughs> a gentleman caller. <laughs> a gentleman caller <laughs> in Christ. But very interesting. Actually reading that back, of, of, not only do we mention common cold, but then also plagues of locusts. So interestingly, two worlds combining there uh, 300 years ago. Interesting. And we are now about to suffer the worst recession for 300 years. So a lot going on in that scene. Oh. So that is uh, that is very, very exciting. Thanks for pointing that out, Tim. Thanks very much. I thought I'd give everyone a bit of a lift. Uh, I think that's that's always always very important. Uh, Maria, your character within this is very special because obviously she is an unmarried woman that has a lot of money, which is quite a rarity. And I did a little bit of kind of uh, digging around and having a look around at things at a few statistics uh, about that period and women in that particular period. And I have two in particular that I think might be vaguely interesting, but I'll hit you with them. The first one is the Mayflower. Now, obviously everyone talks about the Mayflower and how wonderful and all that. And they're bringing the uh, the pilgrims and everything, but statistically on board there was hundred and two people that sailed from Plymouth from um, Portsmouth. Eighteen married women, seven unmarried women traveling with parents, and three young unmarried women and a girl. And then there were seventy three men. Three fourths of the women died in the first few months, while the men were building houses, drinking fresh water. The women were confined to still to the ship. So by the time of the first Thanksgiving. There was only four women left. Wow! Isn't that extraordinary? I never heard that before. That's never kind of part of the talk about the Mayflower. Anyway, that was obviously about 100 years before this. But then it comes on to, uh, and this feeds into your character, is married women and single women at this period. And during this particular period uh, in the 1700s, you could vote if you were a single Woman, and there was only in America in in the seventeen hundred, mid seventeen hundreds, early eighteen hundreds, there was only one registered woman voter mm. in the whole country, mm-hmm. and then it changed during the uh, in eighteen something, where that vote was then taken away. Um, but if you are a single woman and a free black slave, you could vote. But if you were a married woman, you couldn't vote because you were seen as property. And so, therefore, your husband would vote instead.
2: Yes, and I, I think that there were. I think that that was not a federal law either, Tim. I think it was different mm. state to state. Um, I'm very
1: thinking, much. Yeah, very much.
2: Certainly, one of the things I thought about a lot for Joe Casta, because, um, well, if you're thinking about who you're going to be or who you're going to pretend to be, you want to find some reason why they are that way. And um, I mean, I I think she's amazing. I'm absolutely mad about her, but um, she's fairly. She's fairly hardcore. Like she's, you know, she's sometimes yeah. kind and practical and resourceful, but she's also like, she's deeply manipulative as well. And, um, she's very astute. She plays people off against each other all the time. But I really began to think about the time and how she would have survived as a woman there once her husband had passed. Um, and she really had to be you know, really, really on her toes, re- way ahead of everybody else in order not to have her plantation and wealth and title taken from her. So um, it gave me a lot of... Uh, it gave me a lot of encouragement, I suppose, about um, really playing her, you know, fairly hard, that she... She's endured a lot to get there. First of all, we know she left Scotland and she lost all of her children um, along the way. And then she, she gets there with, with Hector and then he goes too. Um, so, she, she, yeah, it explained a lot to me about how um, how resourceful and um, what there's some word I'm looking for to describe but her behaviour, but I can't think what it is now. But uh, I imagine... Imagine being there and just a, thinking that at any moment, it, you know, a, a foot wrong and your neighbours or the local um, Lieutenant Wolf or, or they'll, they'll be in and they'll have it and you'll be out of there.
3: I was thinking the word mi- might be Machiavellian or maybe even, um, you know, you, you thought this whole kind of thing came out of nothing, this whole Tennessee Williams uh, reference that I, I was pulling out of nowhere, but uh, she she is a... She lives in the South, and um much like Liz Taylor, maybe, um, she's had many husbands as well, hasn't she?
2: <laughs> yes, she has. There we go. She likes a good engagement ring. Yeah.
3: <laughs> there we go. Look, I'm not entirely bringing stuff just out of thin air, but <laughs> I could possibly be doing that. But she does have, have an element of that complicated Southern woman, and, and just the fact she, I don't know, um, she has – uh, has to be so independent and that also doesn't seem to be want to be dependent on a man
2: absolutely and she i mean you know we know that she had three husbands and and is uh you know chatting to a fourth in in season five and um she seems to utterly have chosen made those moves uh purely for survival she puts survival above everything else and i suppose that she gave up so much to get there. She gave up, as we've said, her children and her life in Scotland and her, her heritage, everything she knew, the land she was from, all of the rest of her family. So I suppose she will do anything to make that um, be worthwhile. And survival is the only way to prove that, I suppose. To survive is, is everything for her, to have River Run, to have her, her status in the local community. And the power that she does have from her, her, um, you know, her sawmills and her indigo and all of that, all of that stuff that she, the wealth that she's created, she's very proud of that. And, and she's fairly good at it because it has, she has managed to maintain it and keep it. But also there's this kind of um, feeling from her that she has to hide it as well. She has to hide how, how clever and how capable she is because Again, that would upset the local powerful men and they would figure out a way to take her down. So it, it's really interesting. In, in the male characters in that same situation, you see them much more openly um, swagger and boast and display their wealth and their power. And as a woman, she can't do that. So it's this constant conflict of she has control and leverage, but she has to, you know, be sneaky and inventive and creative about it as opposed to open.
3: Yeah, women through history have had to do that. If we think back to some really great women roles that are in the um, dramatic literature, I think one comes to mind is, is Lady Macbeth. You can't really um, do what she wants, but uses almost Macbeth as her um, instrument. She has to be very. She's really the one who's coming up with all the schemes behind the, uh, Macbeth, and he's the man of action. Um, and yet, the way that we judge her is so different to the way that we judge Macbeth. Macbeth is the hero, um, and yet Lady Macbeth is seen as the uh, the villain of the piece. And I don't think that that's really justified. Totally. I, I mean, but I think
2: I mean I think that's isn't that, isn't that the way of the world? Don't we judge women and men differently anyway on their behaviour? If we think even now, you know, in our in our political world, the the fate of women and men is is so different. I, in in a in a much smaller way, but I I mean I do always find when I'm being interviewed um, that people ask me about how I manage to um, juggle my uh, parenting and my work, and they never ask my husband that. Um, uh, and you know there's a there's a constant difference, but I mean it's up to us to change that i mean it's really about fairness for me it's about equality of, of opportunity and uh and and i think once we recognize that it isn't there for everybody then we can go about um dismantling the way things are done or changing it or making things more fair yeah more diverse more fair more uh more pathways into things for people
3: yeah and dismantling those power structures absolutely i imagine that's one of the things that playing the character you definitely had to be very um cognizant of in many ways we, we have changed a lot but also haven't changed at all
2: well there's a way go so in in all of our yeah in all of our in all of our worlds in in acting and in the real world you know and everywhere we are there's um there's inequality and there's things that we can do about it and um, even just small constant changes and awareness do you know move things forward that things have changed so much in the last 20 years in Ireland it would you know it would just make you feel encouraged and it would make you feel that um that your vote matters for for instance you know we, we managed to change fairly significant things here as a country so yeah I feel I feel encouraged and empowered to go on I I have to say and uh and even Jocasta I mean uh, as an actress I mean I'm 55 now and you know to be everyone told me that I wouldn't you know I wouldn't work after 37 or whatever and he um yeah I refuse to obviously believe that or accept it but uh, it's, you know, it's great. And I love that in our show, I love that they showed uh, an older couple, couple who were passionate about each other as well and who clearly had to, you know, desire for each other. I, I, was really, I was really glad to see that. It's not obviously something you see a lot of in television. So it was, yeah, it was another interesting part of her, her world um, for me.
1: Music has always played a massive part in your life. Yeah. Um, and I think you recently described, you described it as, uh, being like nourishment, being like food. Yes. So so you just talk a little bit about, about that, about how, how and what music does, does for you and has done for you?
2: Well, I mean, I guess I still consider myself a singer who does a bit of acting. (laughs) Um, and I got my first job by, by accident. I never went to drama school, um, so I, I I learned everything on the job. So what happened with the commitments was they had they had been looking around. They'd gone and auditioned a whole load of uh, different people, and they hadn't quite found what they were looking for. So they just did an open call. They play, I basically saw a poster in a bar <laughs> that said, "Can you can you sing? You know, um, would you like to be in the film? Call this number or something." So, um, so I did call, and I was in a band at the time. I had, uh, you know, I've been singing ever since I was in college, and met some like-minded people who also played instruments and wanted to be in a band, and started playing in bands then. And uh, so, anyway, they 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 knew my band, so they they I got in, and and I read and I read again, whatever. I got the job, but so that was really it was a really fun time. I made some great friends, but I kind of thought that was. A one-off experience. I sort of said, "Well, I, I could do that because I know what it's like being in a band. So I know this. I know what this, this action means. I know what the story means. I know how to tell it. And it wasn't quite my accent, but it was very close. So I, I didn't really think I would do any more acting. And then, um, I." Went to visit someone on a set about a year later and kind of missed, realized how much I missed that whole connection. So then I said, oh, I'll try and do some more. But in the meantime, singing all the time, writing songs, we've been running a record label, our own record label now for, I think, 20 years. And before that, we were signed to other ones, But it's, um, I mean, I, I wouldn't spend a day without singing or Singing, trying to write a song or singing somebody else's song or listening to music, I do feel it's like food. And and I don't, it's the safest place I can ever be is singing really because I don't think, I'm just there and I don't worry and I don't, yeah, I don't worry. And I, as a person, have a tendency to sometimes maybe think too much or overanalyze things or, or project, what if, what if, and I don't do that when I'm singing and and I, I, I so it just it's I'm I'm calm and I I feel connected to the world also and the, it's the thing about a live gig is um for two hours or something you just really feel the strength of human connection that you're all plugged into the same thing and you and you're just communing that's well, it isn't without words because there are the words of the music, but you're just all understanding something on a deeper level than is kind of instruction and re- receiving, and, and it's just very, it just get, it's just fantastic, and the the music as well that like choral music. I'm not in a choir, but I I went to Tallinn um last year to the sound festival there because I'd heard about it. Thirty thousand people sing in choirs together at the audience, it was the most moving thing I've ever experienced. I cried and cried and cried. It was so, it was so beautiful. And um, I think it, I think it just has that, I think it has that power. I think it can almost do anything. It can cut you. Um, Music can make you dance. It can, it can calm you. It can incite you. It can, it give you encouragement. It can, you know, unite people in some kind of, you know, rallying cry. It's. Uh, I just. I don't know. I can't. I can't explain how much it, it. It means to. I couldn't imagine a world without music.
1: Your music is is you know in terms of it's quite political. It's it's quite r- folksy. It's quite rootsy. Um, I was listening to some of your stuff and it's got quite an Appalachian feel to it which i adore it's one of my sort of things that i love is that that type of music and for some reason there's something kind of in in me that just connects to it i mean is there is a specific thing about that style of music that connects with you that makes you go yeah that's it's that style
2: Yeah. And that was just one album that we made, Tim, called The Storms Around the Ocean. And the reason that we did that was because we found a cassette of, um, Harry Smith made all these recordings in the early 1900s and he made an anthology of American folk music. We found a cassette of some of his recordings in a, like in a a jumble sale or something or a charity shop. And um, as we drove around... uh, with it it was in the car and we used to play it in the car all the time which as I was saying to you kind of says a lot more about our, the kind of car we had at the time <laughs> than anything else because it still had a cassette player in it but one of the children really fell in love with these uh, old old folk songs, and um, so then we decided to and originally these recordings were from the 1900s but a lot of the songs were from the 15 and 16 and 1700s And they had made their way from Ireland and Scotland to America and become sort of part of the Appalachian tradition. So I think in some way we felt by re-recording them, we sort of rearranged them and changed, made them ours somehow. We kind of felt in a way we were bringing some of them home. So it was interesting. But I mean, um, mostly we write our own songs and they would be a little bit different than that. It's more, I I don't, I never really know what to call our music, but it's more like indie so
3: I don't write it
1: fabulous and i think i think i heard i think I read somewhere that um Kieran is a is a is a is like a frenetic writer could write an album in like a a year do you are you the same or do you kind of have to wait for the muse to kind of hit you and kind of and then have a ah oh, right yes now this this has to be written now
2: I think it's probably, I don't really play an instrument. I play a little bit of piano enough to work out melodies for myself when I'm doing something, but I don't play an instrument well. And I think that's a big part of it. Like he plays guitar, like, you know, like he breathes. It's just, it's an extension of his of his body, you know, the guitar. So he, he can, he'll he pick it up at any time and just play and, and, and make new melodies. And I'm more... Um, percolating ideas for a long time, kind of observe something would happen maybe and I would react to it or I would see something or a person or observe. I think I think a lot of all of my work comes from observing things. And I but yeah, I suppose a lot of makers of things are like that. I I, I think that's as well with acting, as I was saying, I didn't ever go to acting school. So I got a job and then a little bit later I got another one. And then I just watched everybody like a hawk. I had the the great fortune to work with some great directors early on like that, Alan Parker, John Foreman, and and these fantastic, generous actors. And I think maybe I was lucky as well that I was doing that in Ireland and not somewhere... I mean, I've heard terrible stories about people starting off acting um, in the States where there was much more, much less... Um, Inclusion. Uh, anybody I worked with really was happy to talk and and to share what they knew and and are happy to be observed doing what they knew. It was I don't know. I, had, I I was very lucky, I suppose. And that's the same way with writing songs. I just people are so fascinating, aren't they? I mean, you just you know you watch people on a bus how they interact with each other, what they. If you happen to be sitting behind them, you know what they might actually be talking about too. But um, it's—I don't know—everybody in their in their, their worlds are very often not what you expect. It's 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 just writing things and acting. I suppose has become a good lesson in um, suspending your judgment. I understand why we have sort of quick judgments. We they come from the old part of ourselves that wants to not get into danger you want to be able to judge situations before you get there and you know maybe be prepared to protect or defend yourself or not but it's such an old old instinct and sometimes we use it in a way that we we immediately see somebody or a couple or a situation or a house and we we slot it into a type don't we we go oh I've got this I I I know that I know where I know where those people are I know I know what they what what they think or what they like and and it's so it's so wrong, and it's so limiting. So, writing things has made me really call that out in myself, and and check it, and stop it, and be open to what I'm going to find out, rather than thinking I know it before I get there. It's kind of an interesting reflection. I think. Um, um. I'm sorry. Am I talking too much? Not at much? all. I'm... Not at
3: all. No. <laughs> no. We all want to hear you talk, as you said. People are are endlessly fascinating, and and. You are, without exception, fascinating. That's what we have you on the show. I'm endlessly fascinated by Tim as well. Um, <laughs> I frequently just stare at him. In disbelief, a lot of the time.
1: Utter disbelief. How does that <laughs> How does that move around to make decisions? When, That's what I used I know.
3: When we were on set, I would just be looking at you, and you'd be asking why I'd be looking at you, and I would say, well, I just think you're endlessly fascinating.
1: That's exactly what I would say. And then I'd say, I usually
3: have to get a tea now. And so I had a habit of doing that with a lot of people, just thinking that they're endlessly fascinating. And and one of the things that I'm fascinated, Maria, delving a bit more and unpacking this idea between an actor and a singer, um, speaking as someone who does both, I often find it surprising that people are surprised that those two things might not necessarily go hand in hand. They think that, well, because you're an actor, um, how dare you be able to sing? Or because you're a singer, then how dare you be able to act? And often when people make that transition, they kind of characterize their work differently or they don't see it in the same way. We, also, we always want people to be the one thing.
2: Yeah. But I
3: think artists are almost enriched by having a multidisciplinary approach to the way that they express themselves through art. And I'm wondering how advantageous what differences do you see by someone who is a singer and the way that they express themselves through their acting
2: um I think you're absolutely right I think that sometimes people want you only to be able to only to do one thing it's easier again it's to do with that sort of saying there's a type or something you recognize and it being only the one thing but some of the people that I've admired most in my life um I could just see, and we're all looking for signs, aren't we? We're looking for, well, some people just wake up in the morning or they're born and they just know who they are and what they are. I always, you know, most of us look for um, beacons or signposts or influence. You know, I know I certainly have been influenced by, by situations I've been in and people I've seen all my life. But some of the people like Patty Smith, for example, is is a really good example she just always walked her own path. She's we know her as a singer, obviously. She's an artist, I mean a painter as well. She takes photographs. She um she's a writer, like quite an acclaimed writer. Now she's always written poetry and bits of prose, but now she wrote, she's written some books that have been hugely successful. One of them is about to be made into a TV show and stuff. So she was never constrained. and... I find that a lot of people I meet, a lot of singers or actors or painters do several things. They, they, and and I, I have no problem with that. I think you're, if the, if the creative door is open in your brain, usually there's different ways you have of telling a story. And I I think it's all coming from the same well, it's all coming from you. So I think
3: it's fine. Yeah, I agree. I think that often in this business and when it gets commercialised, we often, in the way that humans think, um, we like to think of things in brands. We don't like it when someone steps outside their brand, you know, like say Nike started making, you know, went into book publishing or something. We'd be like, well, that's very off brand. You know, we, don't, we wouldn't like that. But I think in terms of actors and artists, we all like to tell stories. And I think that's something that you said before, Maria, you like to tell stories. And I'm wondering if for you, and maybe you've already touched on this, if music is perhaps more of a pure art for you or pure form of expression than acting?
2: Well, I mean, the difference is obviously that I write, for the most part, I write my own songs. So the the ideas in them, um, you know, Colour Code or Colour Code is about Sandra Bland. Um, a song called Pride was written particularly for the... Um, marriage equality referendum in Ireland and so they're 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 my words so that's the difference certainly between acting but they definitely both disciplines have fed each other I think that my I think that our gigs are probably more a bit more theatrical um, as a result of my acting experience and I think that I go deeper into characters because of songwriting because I try and really inhabit somebody's mind and not just their their physicality um so I, I, it definitely it's helped each other but I mean I, I can't I'll never be showing you any paintings that I've done because I can't draw I'm desperate but I like to I like to doodle as well and I sometimes find that that's very freeing of your mind just scribbling with markers and pencils and I, I think it all should be open to people I don't I I just I've always hated and I still really, the idea of constraint or limitation or be, and I really abhor the word brand I, I mean in terms of people I certainly I don't see myself as a brand I, I see myself as I hope that I'm going to have some kind of holistic you know experience I want to I don't want to just be an actor or a singer as well I want to be I am uh, a mother and a part of a family and uh, you know, a sentient human being. And I think all of those things are the the whole thing is, is, it's really important to me to have a real life. Success is much less important to me than enrichment and experience. And I guess the idea of success, I had another really wonderful friend, Patrick Scott. He was one of Ireland's most magnificent abstract painters. He's passed away now, but he was a really good friend and a mentor. And his whole thing was, your life is your art. And I, I just saw him do that. And, and, so, and so I've taken as much as I can from his way of being. Like having dinner with your friends is part of your art. You know, that's going to feed into your songs or how you perform or how you relate to people or how gracious you are or not or how self-conscious you are or not. And of course, all of those things change at different times. But that's it. It's all it's all part of you. It's all part of the person. And and I'm fine with that. i I, I I'm really, I'm okay with that. I'm going to do my best at whatever I'm doing at that particular time.
3: Just touching on this idea about identity and branding. And we all three, all of us, have been part of this show, Outlander. And what I find fascinating, particularly with you, Maria, is unlike many of us who are part of the show, you are in no way defined by Outlander because you had an amazing career. And, and in some ways... You had a very defining career moment with the commitments and yet uh, Outlander, as you've discovered, has invariably changed lives in ways that most of us don't really anticipate and sort of becomes you in a way that maybe you don't really recognise. Do you identify with that as well in the, in terms of the sometimes overbearance of Outlander on its identity as a view as an artist or how, how you're seen as an artist or has that been different from the ways that uh, the multiple other projects that you've done
2: i mean it's different in terms of its fan base isn't it i don't think i've I've been involved with something that had such an enormous uh life and expectation and you know realization before i ever got near it you know it's this huge fan base who come from having read the books and are now invested in, in the in the tv series so that that's something that i hadn't experienced before and i have to say it's been a positive experience for me The people have been very welcoming um initially I think they were a bit skeptical they um they did sort of I, I remember when I got the job initially a lot of people said you know on social media said hello you know welcome to the clan that sort of thing and there were a few people a bit who said oh she's a bit young I don't think but then you know look, they got to look at me in the wig with no makeup on they were like no she can look like an old crone. no problem I'm I believe I'll believe that. I'll take it. Um, I think it's slightly different for me, David, than for you, um, because my position in the show, first of all, I look entirely different than I do in real life with the wig and all of the costume and I have a totally different accent. So I don't get confronted as much or recognized as much. I wouldn't as you would, for example. And also, you know. Ooh, I don't know.
3: I still have a Wiganan accent. I'd like to think I'm <laughs> pretty unrecognizable. Have but no, go
2: on. To do. But, um, I mean, I think people are in, invested in a lot of the fan base would be invested in, in being in love with you. And they would not be feeling that way about me. So I think, in terms of a, of a I think what you're talking about is a sort of an impact, maybe, or an identification with that character. Mine is so sort of far away from me that, that people would just go, Oh well, she's probably a really she's probably a really hard old bitch. Maybe they might think that about me. I don't know. But they don't, no, I don't think they, so. don't have, yeah. they don't have expectations from me, I don't think. Whereas I think they do with some of the male characters, yours included. And I think there's a lot invested in, in falling in love with you. So I think that you probably well, maybe when yeah, there's a
3: love element involved, people are a bit more invested in, in your identity, I think. I I do take a little bit of delight when I open my mouth to fans and they say something like, well, wow, you're Australian. I'm like, yes, I'm Australian. I I, I like the fact that I fooled you into believing that I can be English. I mean, I I like to fool Tim all the time that I'm English. Um, And he's been giving me a lot of instruction, tea at every opportunity, always carry an umbrella, never arrive at a point, don't talk about feelings or anything I, don't I'm, do that i know how to be english no <laughs> don't do that that's the sure fire it's much like you can
1: tell there are certain tells i think within sort of cultural tells like for instance you know you can always tell an american if you sit down for dinner because they will always eat just with a fork and not use a knife things like that you kind of go aha right. yes i can see you are playing english but you want not." and the classic tell with an english person is they just won't tell you anything how are you fine <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so how's your day been moderate and that's it. And that's it. And that's enough, enough emotion has been shown there to we go. all right, calm down. Go. Did not a I line always story.
3: loved this one line that um was from the Scarlet Pimpernel. that that um what was his name? The guy that was in um with Nell and I. Uh Richard come on, Richard I mean, E. Grant? Yes, Richard E. Grant. Played the Scarlet Pimpernel. And I just thought it was just so pimpin' the way he said. Pimpin' is not a boy that you usually associate with the, the English, but he was the Scarlet Pimpernel after all. Where he was asked, How are you? And he said, Tolerably well. And I was like, Wow, tolerably <laughs> well. <laughs> Who says that? Yeah. The Scarlet Pimpernel, that's Pimpin'
2: yeah it's we do have um we do have national reputations to maintain all of us don't we (laughs) and in some ways i certainly um i certainly adhere to mine in some ways but but yeah again there's more to us than that (laughs) but it's fun it's fun to play them up and it is a good testament to your i think you should be proud of that i think it's a great testament to your acting that people just go wow that's a totally different person that i had in my mind and again of course i think Things like that and, uh, you know, costuming, uh, um, a wig, uh, an accent for sure helps separate you from the character for yourself. I find it very helpful to suddenly not be me, to suddenly get all that stuff on and that voice on and go, oh, now I'm her, you know.
3: In case anyone has ever wondered why Tim grows a moustache, we know the, the whole psychology behind that, don't we, Tim?
1: It's my, it's my cunning disguise, uh, because I've just, just, otherwise I just get mobbed, Maria, everywhere I go. I just, please, just leave me. I'm, just, I'm trying to just get a shop in. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to buy bleach. Please, let me be. Let me be. But there is something so, and I think all actors have this, is there's something so incredibly freeing, about being hiding within a character, or being able to play out uh, uh, some someone else, um, which is part, for me the one of the absolute joys is to be able to kind of find those little kind of shadowy corners of yourself and kind of bring them out and be allowed to bring them out rather than sort of say, oh no 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 you don't 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 do that. that's <laughs> going back to Englishness again, but you don't show this and you don't do that and you don't show that emotion or that's too much or you know men don't do all these kind of things that society kind of puts on you within performing or being creative you are told to actively do it which i find the most liberating and and freeing that you can uh that one can possibly be
2: especially here i mean especially if you're playing someone who's a bit bad oh um you you get to just do terrible things without the real life consequences of your actions i mean yay (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there isn't. About it.
1: There's nothing better, nothing better. Oh, great! So I get to, I get to rob this bank. Brilliant! And and then people, uh-huh. and then people actively applaud you. That was very good. The way you did that, very menacing. Whereas in real life, that would be uh possibly the opposite. I dare say.
2: I think another thing about um the idea of brand, David, in terms of uh in, in terms of acting. Um, there are actors who you just always know what they're going to do, right? Because they're just they've just created a certain thing, and they. Just-
3: sure, if Tom Cruise comes to mind. He's, we know what we're going to get when we do a Tom Cruise movie, and I'm quite happy to see a Tom Cruise movie or a Schwarzenegger movie. Absolutely, but
2: the most exciting people are people who. You know, you don't know what you're going to get.
3: You don't know what the they're transformative going to get. ones. Yeah,
2: I, yeah. Know, I agree. And you're going to totally um, believe them as another person. I mean, they're the most. That's always the most exciting stuff for me to to see. Something I, I don't know what it's going to be, but I know I'm going to going to believe every word of it. So.
3: Oh, no, I agree with you. I think that's something that we were told. And I remember in drama school, we had a a, a, a very very harsh teacher, but very good teacher who define actors by the transformative actors or non-transformative actors. And so there's a school of thought that I guess based in maybe Stanislavski that you can be transformative. So we're thinking about maybe a Daniel Day-Lewis, maybe a Johnny Depp, maybe someone who really disappears as a chameleon, and then non-transformative actors, maybe from the school of Meisner, who really thinks that you really can only be the one person or various iterations of the one thing. Um, but of course, there's this sort of pejorative sense in that if you're not transformative, then you're not really an actor, you're just a personality. And I remember one time, it, it was in our third year in the three years of acting school, we were all seated around and there's uh, there 24 of us in the class. And you'd point to each one of us and just this very kind of like, uh, it's like we we're being lined up to be, <laughs> to be at the firing squad. And you go, you transform, you transform, you don't transform, you don't transform you transform. And he got to me and I can't remember what he said. I can't remember. <laughs> I was just so in shock whether he said I transformed or not, because some people who said you maybe transform, And I think I was a maybe transform, but ever since this day, I've always had it in my mind for the true aspiration of an actor should be someone who can transform within your own limitations. And I definitely do feel, Marie, that in your are Jocasta in spite of the differences that you say between wig and accent and so forth is something that you've transformed into. And I think that's partly due to the costuming and so forth. But I I also think it's it's definitely testament to the work that you said that you do on the internal life of your character. Um, Because the externals are something that you really don't have much control over, but the internal life and the things that really motivate the character are the things that really make you transform.
2: Thank you very much. I mean, I think a huge part of her, obviously, that informed everything from the get-go is that you can't see. So I can't, um, I mean, mostly, we've spoken about this before, I know, just in hanging out, David, but, I mean, mostly we we give our cues and we get our cues from people with our eyes. And, I mean, I had obviously kind of thought about it before I, I, you know, showed up to do my first scene and I practiced walking around and trying to navigate the world without using my sight and all of that kind of stuff. But I didn't really, really understand what I was going to be doing until the very first scene. And I sat down and it was with um, Sam and uh, Katrina. And I said, I looked over and I suddenly went, oh, fuck, I am not going to make eye contact with anybody for eight months. I was just, I suddenly was overwhelmed with, loneliness I I just was oh this was a big mistake I'm not going to be I'm not going to be I'm not going to be happy I'm not going to be able to do this but of course I just figured out then what to do about sort of um defocusing my eyes a little bit and where to slightly get my gaze. you know slightly pitch my gaze and stuff and then of course I don't have to do it between takes I'm not a method person I'm you know I'm going to be hanging out and talking and looking to you and then I don't feel lonely when I get to hang out but it certainly is a big part of her you know, because it informs the way she moves, the speed at which she moves, and all of the all of those kind of things. So that was a big that was a big
3: help as well. So now we're on this topic of transformation, um, a lot of the things that we talk about with acting is um, when actors transform into something that someone could potentially play without having to transform. So what we do admire about actors on sometimes on the on the one hand can sometimes be the very thing that we don't like about them. So if, for instance. I play a gay man on Outlander, but I'm not gay. And sometimes I do feel a little bit unnerved by that. I don't f- I feel I like a sense of authenticity about that. I'm wondering how you feel about playing someone with a disability. Do you feel that, is it something that you think about and would you feel more comfortable if the part was someone who actually had a disability? How do you think about that?
2: I i, I did think about it, of course, um, and I think about those things in in a couple of ways. I mean, if I, if I hadn't had the opportunity to act beyond who I am, um, you know, things would have been different for me. Um, like for example, I got the chance to play Catherine of Aragon, um, who's the Spanish queen. Um, now I was delighted to get that job and to have the opportunity to do that. But obviously, I had to pretend to have a Spanish accent, and I've had to I pretend to have a Scottish accent with Joe as well as I pretend that my side is. I think that I mean I'm glad I've had that's acting for me, and I'm glad to have those opportunities. Um, and I think, you know, pretending to be gay or pretending to be straight, you know, acting, doing it, as long as the as long as the opportunity there both ways. As long as um, gay actors are allowed to play straight parts, then you know I think that that's that's fine. And it, and it it's an it's an acting skill. You're acting. Um, yeah, it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? You want? I guess I just wanted to go both ways. I wanted to be equal opportunity. Um, I have a son, for example, who has Down syndrome, and uh, recently there have been some really fantastic. Um, Actors that I've seen who also happen to have dance, and I think that that's a new kind of opening up of of, uh, of our uh, ideas about who can or can't act or who should or shouldn't get a part in. The, and that's been really a really positive um, development, I think. Did you see the? Is it the Peanut Butter Falcon? Is that what it was called? It was fantastic film. I think it's Peanut Butter Falcon. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I digress, but it's a beautiful film with a young Down syndrome actor in it. Um, and Shia LaBeouf, it's, it's well worth watching if you haven't seen it, it's really good. I mean, I think that if I hadn't had a chance to do things that are not just part of me, then I wouldn't have had any of the great parts I've had. I wouldn't have been able to do the Tudors and have a Spanish accent. And I'm sure there were lots of people who said she shouldn't have that job, it should be a Spanish actress. But I'm really glad I did have it. And I mean, I think... Being able to transform at least a bit is part of acting, you know, using different accents, using different body types and and having different motivations and different perspectives. That's what acting is. So but I just would like the opportunity to go both ways. That's what I was kind of saying. I like
3: is it f- fairness and representation, maybe? Because I remember, Maria, you sent me a film that you directed and it starred your son who's acting in yeah. it. Yeah. And I wonder sometimes about the opportunities for him and I think it's been important that representation for people who experience a whole spectrum of life is there in the arts without taking away from the craft of the actor. And it's hard sometimes to draw the line, what is art, what's fair? But um, I think that we have to sometimes balance both representation and craft. I think we all agree that Laurence Olivier's uh, Othello was probably <laughs> a bit on the nose now. We, we, we wouldn't be doing that. But uh, we've also seen in uh, recent times the first trans actors and stuff. So I think it's, it's heading in a really interesting and cool way. And maybe the idea of the transformative actor is becoming still something we revere, but also something we have to step away from a little bit as we embrace ideas of representation. I don't know, just an idea.
2: Yeah. It's, I think it's all really interesting. I just think it needs to be, as you say, fair. It needs to go both ways. If, if straight actors can, can play gay roles, then gay actors must also be able to be seen as, uh, as, you know,
3: realistic heartthrob lovers and you know well they have been through time we we know this already (laughs) plenty of gay actors in Hollywood
2: but less so but I mean openly gay actors will very frequently be told that they can only play gay characters and that's so that's not that's not a fair trade you know what I mean that's um but I think representation is absolutely I mean I made the film uh it's a just a short film I made it with Daniel because he didn't really ever see uh, himself represented in film or in stories, and he loves film. Um, and he's a very able young man. And also, I wanted to say something with the film a little bit. And um, a lot of people say about Daniel, or or his Daniel is my son, or his friends, that he is Dan syndrome. Now, I would say he has. Down syndrome and it's the tiniest difference of a word but that is the reality of it. Daniel has Down syndrome along with an absolutely truckload of other um, DNA that he has inherited from both of our families and a personality the size of a small country. He's an extraordinary individual but I wanted Again, I suppose maybe back to the idea that we spoke a little bit earlier on about judgment, about people seeing him and maybe deciding already things about his uh, ability or or lack of ability. Um, and so I just wanted to challenge that a little bit.
1: Well, Maria, thank you so much for being, as David has said, thank you so much for being our outcast uh, today. Um, and I think we're going to have a, a song from you Uh not live, but a song from you uh, to play us out. Um, so, just like to tell us a little bit about the song that you have chosen.
2: Well, um, I thought, as we were talking so much about uh, that time, the 1700s and Joe and everything, I thought maybe I'd um, maybe we'd play you one of those songs that we found from Harry Smith's American Folk Anthology. Uh, originally, this is. The version we heard was a Carter family um, version of this song, but it's certainly they adapted it from older folk songs. And I think I I would sing it, especially this time for all the people who through what's going on in the world at the moment have been um, separated from their loved ones or finding it hard to, to visit or to get to see in real life the people that they're missing.
1: Maria, thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Hey You have been listening to Outcasts.
3: Please remember to rate, subscribe and leave a review as it all helps.
1: Follow us on our Instagram page at outcast.podcast for all the latest updates.
3: Or you can send us an email at outcastspodcastshow at gmail.com. Every week
1: we should be selecting a question from
3: one of our listeners to ask our guests. The theme music is composed by Kieran Ledwidge. All views and opinions expressed on the show are our own and have no affiliation with the series of books written by Diana Gabaldon or the Sony Stars television show, Outlander.
1: No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. Although I did have a ham sandwich earlier, so. See you next time. See you next time.